0: Welcome to Untold the Stories podcast. I'm your host, Osama Gawish. This week, a new report by New Lines Institute revealed that as May 2nd, more than 11 million people, one quarter of the Ukrainian population, have fled their homes due to the Russian invasion. According to the UNHCR figures, more than 5.5 million, mostly women and children, have left their country and become refugees since the invasion began on February 24th. More than half of the country's estimated 7.5 million children have been displaced. Ukrainian men aged 18 to 60 are eligible for military call-up and cannot leave. After just over two months, these numbers are comparable to those of serious decade long civil war, which has displaced more than 13 million people. To know more about this report and the main findings and the policy recommendation, let me welcome the author of this report, Alice Hickson. Alice, an analysis of the power vacuum program in the Human Security Unit at the New Alliance Institute. Prior to joining New Alliance, Alice worked for the Middle East. Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, and the Council on Foreign Relations editorial team during her time studying in Jordan. She conducted independent research of her thesis on Palestinian refugees and the right of return. Alice holds a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations and Middle Eastern Studies from Tufts University. Alice, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is an amazing report, informative and it's it's shocking the numbers you 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 are uh, revealed in this report so um let me start with um, the, the first question regarding the the main findings of your report.
1: yeah, so the main findings really were that the levels of displacement right now from Ukraine are truly historic and shocking. I believe actually today the UN announced that. Now more than 8 million people in Ukraine have been internally displaced from the invasion, and almost 6 million have fled the country and become refugees in neighboring countries. So I believe that's now around 13.5 million Ukrainians in total, which have been forced to relocate within or outside the country. So these are record levels of displacement that we haven't seen since World War Two. So many Ukrainians, as we know, have found refuge in Eastern Europe, countries such as Poland, Romania and Hungary. Uh, and many of those internally displaced have fled from the east to cities in the west like Lviv, which are much closer to the border. So my report really looked at where are these refugees going, how can we best help them um, and what will that, what should, the, what the international response has been and what the response should be going forward.
0: Yeah. Um, and before we go further in, in the details of your report, just Would you please tell me more about the methodology? You interviewed refugees or you just um, collect some official data from Ukraine, from the um, United Nation?
1: Yeah, definitely. So my report was based on open source intelligence uh, from the Internet um, and also through eyewitnesses, eyewitness interviews with Ukrainian refugees that were published uh, on major news outlets um, obviously, this issue has been widely covered, and so I was mainly just collecting uh, the data on the Ukrainian refugee crisis and figuring out how the US and Europe can best address this issue.
0: Brilliant. And um, if we start with the status of displaced Ukrainians, and I think this was um, a, a very important topic in your in your report.
1: Yeah, so like you mentioned, uh, just over two months into this conflict, the levels of displacement from Ukraine, uh, more than that of Syria's 10-year civil war. Um, and so in Syria, there were almost 7 million IDPs and 6.6 million refugees worldwide. So in terms of internal displacement, the levels in Ukraine has already surpassed that and is approaching the same level of refugees Um, with estimates from the UN that the numbers will get as high as 10 or 15 million. So this is truly an unprecedented crisis in terms of pace and scale, and Europe simply was not prepared for it. Um, The infrastructure in place was not equipped to deal with populations of this size in such a short amount of time. And then we also have internally displaced people inside the country who are sometimes in cities without food, water, electricity, who are waiting to uh, evacuate through the humanitarian corridors. Um, much of the conflict now has been in the east, and so Ukrainians are fleeing west, um, oftentimes waiting um, incentives centers to be evacuated. So the situation inside Ukraine is really uh, quite dire for the internally displaced people. Um, and for the refugees who have left Ukraine, they have for the most part been welcomed uh, with open arms into europe and the response has been truly uh, very welcoming um, and unprecedented
0: and what about the the main issue regarding this large number of, of refugees uh, was it economic pressures or security concern or, or a complex of all of this
1: yeah so There's a lot of concerns that come out of having a refugee influx of this size into Europe. Um, There's already been knock-on effects from the crisis that we've seen, um, such as a market rise in food insecurity, which the EU is currently attempting uh, to address. And honestly, having this many refugees is extremely expensive. The EU has already assigned over 500 million euros for humanitarian aid um, for refugees, but The cost of supporting um, more than 6 million refugees now is estimated to be more than 50 billion euros in 2022 alone. So this influx is putting considerable strain on the Polish authorities, humanitarian aid agencies, and has definitely raised questions as to how the EU will support both substantively and financially these refugees. And Just the massive numbers are really altering the European landscape. Um, going to be become considerable members uh, of these, uh, considerable size um, and percentage of the population in these countries. Um, and the economic impact in the short term is definitely going to ha- be a high cost.
0: And do you think the EU and the United States are ready to keep paying this high Pell of, of, of Ukrainian refugees?
1: So that definitely is the question. Um, Policymakers in Europe and the U.S. are understandably focused on the immediate provision of food, shelter and legal status. But they do really need to consider these bigger near term realities um, like finding housing and adequate infrastructure to support refugees. Poland, who's accepted the most refugees so far, doesn't have any infrastructure like refugee camps like other uh, countries, that have hosted large portion, large um, amounts of refugees like Jordan and Turkey. So they really are having a strain uh, on their resources. And so ensuring that there is going to be aid, not just emergency aid, but for a long-term response that includes focus on integration and meeting specific needs of the population um, will be very critical. And I think so far we have seen a really generous response. and. Hopefully that the the EU and US will continue to, uh, to put the continue to have meet the level of need that is required for these refugees.
0: Um, Alice, before the 24th of of February, that the first day of this war, did the Western governments expect this high number of refugees fled from Ukraine?
1: Definitely not. I think the. The overall attitudes uh, from Western uh, countries were that it wasn't likely that Russia was going to invade and that uh, if, if they did, they I mean, if they did, they knew there was going to be many refugees, but they were not prepared for that situation. Um, so there had been large instances of internal displacement in Ukraine before um, the Russia invasion. Um, but this mostly included refugees that were, I mean, uh, uh, internally displaced persons that were displaced from Russian Federation's annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbas in two thousand fourteen. Uh, so that resulted in, I think, almost two million IDPs and one point four million Ukrainian refugees. So they weren't really prepared for a population that was so that was displaced so quickly and in such large quantities. Um, and the last, you know, big instance of into- of uh, Europe receiving many refugees was in 2015 um, from the war in Syria. And the response was very different then. Um, and, you know, the, the rhetoric around those refugees coming into Europe was mainly figuring out how to keep them out um, and limit the numbers of refugees coming in, as we've seen. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So, and and so you mentioned been...
0: the, the Syria's civil war in, in your report. So mm-hmm. what are the numbers compared to those of Syria's civil war now?
1: Yeah, so uh, Syria currently has 7 million IDPs um, and 6.6 million refugees worldwide. So the fact that Ukraine has already surpassed these numbers um, or is close to surpassing in terms of refugees is 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 really unprecedented um, to not overuse the word, but really to get across how um, the levels are extremely high and have happened extremely quickly. And so, and the the estimates that they will become even higher to 10 or 15 million um, is, is worrying considering that um, countries in Eastern Europe and cities like such as Warsaw have indicated that they are already at capacity um, and they... And they don't; they can't feasibly support more refugees, though they are welcoming and keeping their borders open despite the surges. Um, and so, the when Syrian refugees kind of came in two thousand fifteen, uh, we did not see the same level of protections extended to them. Um, in when Ukraine, when the Ukrainian crisis happened, I think because it all happened so quickly, um, the EU offered a, a temporary protection directive. Um, which um, was introduced in 2001. And it means that refugees from Ukraine will be granted temporary residence permit in the EU for up to three years. So this is really a historic act of solidarity with refugees and it's, it's not just the right to be there, but it's also additional rights, like the right to healthcare, the right to work and the right to education. So we really do see the difference in these two responses.
0: Yeah. And in, in your report, you said that Ukrainian refugees are crossing to neighboring countries to the West, such as Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, and Moldova. But you added that many of these countries are vulnerable to Russian provocation. Would you explain more about this point?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, that vulnerable to... Um, in terms of being so close to Russia and they're closer to the crisis and so like I said how that's already been many knock-on effects from the crisis food insecurity without Russia these affects these countries that are closer to Russia much more um, especially when they rely on Russian energy um, and with widespread sanctions on Russia they really need um, all of the, the resources possible to support these refugees um, and it's also that they some of their economies are just not equipped to support refugees of this size. Um some some countries, however, um like Lithuania have actually struggled with labor shortages. Um so there's kind of a mixed mixed results I found of how the economic impact will be on on the neighboring countries.
0: Yeah, and the in the last two months we, we we hear the terms of humanitarian corridors. However it's, it's had um, a bad experience for many Ukrainian. Uh, your report focused on the humanitarian corridors. Um, just let me know more about your, your thoughts, your findings regarding this point.
1: Yeah, definitely. So humanitarian corridors are frequently used during conflict and they're really essential um, to helping refugees. They are temporary demilitarized zones that allow the safe transit of humanitarian aid in, and they allow refugees to have a safe passage out of conflict zones. Um, So the corridor can essentially be associated with a no-fly zone. Um, And Ukraine and Russia agreed to and established humanitarian corridors from some of the hottest hit cities in the country, including Mariupol um, and Sumy, which which were surrounded and shelled incessantly by Russian forces, especially the invasion first began. Um, but there's also been issues with them uh, where they've said they'll be open, but they've had to close because of Russian, Russia shelling these zones, which are meant to be demilitarized, which explains partly why it's taken so long for civilians to be evacuated in places like Mariupol, where they're trapped without food, water, or electricity. Um, and these, these cardinals pre- present a critical lifeline that thousands are relying on for a safe transit out of conflict zones.
0: Yeah, and and Russia keeps saying that they didn't target anyone in the uh, humanitarian corridors. Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, I think it's it's mainly that um, they, while they may not have specifically uh, targeted humanitarian corridors, they haven't been able to open sometimes because Ukrainian officials and humanitarian aid organizations are worried that they will shell these corridors. Um, so it's it's sort of been very on and off when they've been open and um, they've had been delayed multiple times and actually had instances where the International Red Cross had to turn around um, mid-aid delivery because there was an alert that the, the there was going to be an explosion nearby. Um, so while they may not have targeted exactly the humanitarian corridors because it's been so unsafe with the shelling um, in these areas, they have... Yeah. It's been a very slow process.
0: Yeah, and and if we move to the international response in the last three uh, months, we have seen a plenty of support from the United States, from the EU, from the United Kingdom, and in your report you you made this a fundamental table as a comparison between. A few points: How the EU differs from the UK and the US. So, if we start with the legal mechanism, Alice, what's the difference between the United Kingdom, the EU, and the United States?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, But in terms of the legal mechanism, the EU with their temporary protection protection directive, which I mentioned early earlier, that allows uh, any Ukrainian to enter any Ukrainian who's seeking refuge from the Russian invasion. um, They Uh, don't have to have family in the EU. They are welcome to come um, through the land borders, arrive and stay for up to three years. Um, That's very different from the UK and the US um, visa uh, schemes. So in the UK, uh, the family visa scheme, which they're using and the uniting for Ukraine, or no, that's it, Uh, yeah, family visa scheme and the homes for Ukraine scheme are the two in the UK. And those both require sponsorship of some kind to be able to come and register your visa so you have to know you either have to have family in the uk or you have to have someone who is willing to sponsor you which has also presented many human security risks because we have the population is majority women and children and so they've been using social media posting on social media uh, asking for a sponsor um, in the uk and and this has presented um, a worry for many people who got these. uh, Ukrainian women and children are at risk of trafficking and gender based violence um, due to the demographics. And so, and then the US response, Uniting for Ukraine, um, is accepting up to 100,000 uh, refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees, which is uh, not, not nearly as many, but partly just explained by geographic uh, location that most um, refugees will be looking for a passage into Europe. Um, but also the requri- requirements for entering the U.S. Uh, are a lot more stringent um, than than the process for the entering the EU, uh, yeah, which and, is presenting uh, difficulties. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. And and what about the the refugee status? Are, are the the three are the same? The United Kingdom, EU, and the United States regarding refugee status, the work permit, the residency.
1: Yeah. So they. Technically, because the US, so for the UK and EU, yes, they allow for refugee status um, once you enter um, and you can fill that form out right up as you enter at the border or at a, at a processing center, of which there are many. Whereas the US, which has, because they were overstretched with asylum applications um, from the crisis from Afghanistan earlier last, or last August, um, Refugees accepted into the U.S. through Uniting for Ukraine are actually going to be admitted under an ad hoc DHS-run channel known as humanitarian parole, which is separate from the uh, the U.S. Um, Department of State's refugee admissions process. And so, the Ukrainians will not technically have special refugee status. It's just illegal. Um, it's just a legal thing to do with the way that that process, but the the way that that process under the states refugee admissions process is, te- is supposed to be quicker. Um, however, there was speculation regarding that due to the amount of paperwork that the U.S. requires um, and other documents they require for entry. It hasn't actually been um, that quick for them to be processed. Yeah,
0: and, and th- there was a specific documents required to enter the EU countries or the United Kingdom or the United States. Is it all the same or it's different?
1: They're actually all Different. so the eu doesn't require any documents for entry and this is very important um and, and a good policy because as we get further into on into the conflict it is unrealistic to expect that ukrainian refugees will arrive with all of their documents in order um, and so the eu has not required any document for entry um, the uk requires that they have that passport and the us requires that they have that passport they also need you know, different vaccinations, um mainly ones against COVID nineteen. And then once that in the US, they still have to go through like more security questions.
0: Um, um, um hold a second. I'm sorry Alice. Um is the United States asked for a vaccination for COVID from refugees fleeing Ukraine?
1: Yes. Yes. Oh my so God. they have to okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, they that's are not coming happened, for tourists,
0: they are fleeing a conflict zone, a war zone
1: I know I know it's definitely not the best policy, and so I think because they're only accepting hundred thousand they yeah, they have they i think are making it more difficult um for refugees to enter it, it
0: is difficult it is impossible
1: yeah yeah no it, it's completely
0: about the vaccination of covid
1: yeah no it's not a good policy um especially because if we think about it like so many of these uh, refugees as we've seen are in such dire conditions and so having to not only make the difficult and decision to flee their home country but then having to get to a new country and undergo a very bureaucratic yeah. process is is not right
0: so and- imagine russia uh, destroyed their house and there was a family ukrainian family and they arrived to the united states they have their passports but they didn't have the vaccination uh certificate so the united states authorities will say no we can't uh we can't accepting you are they kidding me
1: (laughs) so i think that i mean i haven't heard uh about many of many instances of this happening only because the U.S. has been quite slow to process uh, Ukrainian refugees. Hmm. So, but I think that hopefully they would offer them the opportunity to be vaccinated if they've already arrived in the U.S. um, and they don't have it. Okay. I would hope.
0: Yeah, this does (laughs) make sense. Okay. Yeah, brilliant. And um, regarding the pathway to citizenship, so now they arrived, uh, they've been welcomed, they got the refugee status, the work permit, and they will stay in a new country and start a new life as any refugee. Now, there is a pathway to citizenship in the three places. Alice? Hello? Yes.
1: So, it depends. It is. Alice, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me?
0: Okay, yeah, I can.
1: So. okay so yes there is a pathway pathway for citizenship uh within the eu i believe after the temporary protection protection directive is up uh, it may differ by country but for many eu countries um, they've you they will be able to stay if this conflict which it seems likely will be protracted for more than three years or at least the effects of the conflict will last and extend beyond three years um, and refugees will stay and be integrated into their host communities. That will be pathways to citizenship offered, um, which can alter uh, the domestic political landscape as well. Um, however, in the UK um, and the US, uh, pathways to citizenship are much more difficult to access um, for refugees that came on an asylum claim or um, through one of these legal mechanisms. So. They can probably extend that visa, um, but usually they have to stay in the country for much longer and undergo a rigorous uh, process to get citizenship.
0: Great. And what about other rights, the freedom of movement and the healthcare?
1: Yeah. So uh, the freedom of movement one is interesting in the EU. Once the a lot of people are using Poland as a transit country, um, obviously because it's neighboring with. Uh, Ukraine, many people are going through Poland, many are staying as we've seen, but they are allowed to move on into Europe um, from Poland. So, com- uh, countries in the Schengen area, which is 26 European countries, allow for unrestricted movement across borders for refugees um, for a period of 90 days within a 180 day period. So they are allowed to go and meet family that may have, you know, ended up in Romania and they're in Poland or whatever the situation is. Um, However, in the UK, once you apply for your visa in the US as well, once you are granted your visa, you, if you leave the US or the UK, then your visa uh, is revoked and you are not allowed to come back or you would have to like reapply to get it. So for that, for that reason, because it's already such an arduous process um they they will have to stay um and if if the conflict continues it's obviously in that interest to stay
0: brilliant and um, in the last three months we we all have seen a big difference between the eu's response to this refugee crisis the ukrainian refugee crisis and previous migration crisis and and you have been following this for a long time now alice Palestinian refugees, the Syrian one, the the Afghanistan one, refugees from Africa, from Asia. According to your report, to your findings, what's the difference between the EU's response to this crisis and the previous one?
1: Yeah, so so like I mentioned, we've really seen a pan-European response to this crisis. Um, And, you know, they've kind of opened their arms to Ukrainian refugees and been extremely generous rapidly processing refugees, offering them jobs, you know, making sure they have all of their rights. Um, Whereas this does come in contrast to the EU's response to previous migration crises, like you mentioned, from Asia, Africa, the Middle East, um, during the 2015 migrant crisis. um, uh, And last year, when Afghans fled um, the Taliban um, following the takeover of Afghanistan, the, the rhetoric centered on containing refugees outside the region rather than extending EU protections to them. And after these increased flows uh, uh, in 2015, the EU actually heavily invested in Frontex, its border agency, which allowed it to further secure its external border with military tools. Um, They had armed bodyguards, they introduced new border policies and counterterrorism measures, which led to more discriminatory policing of migrants by authorities. Um, and we've seen throughout since the 2015 and they've actually come under intense scrutiny recently for, you know, racist attacks against migrants, turning them away, leaving them basically to die uh, instead of, you know, allowing them accommodation in EU member states. So it's extremely different than what we are seeing now, where they're basically placed on Ukrainians are basically placed on a fast track for protections for employment, um, health care, all of these resources. Um, and governments, you know, they're waiving the visa requirements, they're providing instant access to labor markets and education. So it is it is notable um, to see the difference in responses.
0: And for myself as a refugee from Egypt, and I'm now based in London, I've mm-hmm. heard many times the media here in the United Kingdom talk about the human and regional security risk because we we have refugees from Africa, we have refugees from Afghanistan, and we don't know um, many information about them, because they they may be uh, terrorists, they came from ISIS, and so on. A lot of articles and a lot of debates in the ministry media regarding this point, the security risk that refugees from Africa and Asia bring to the United Kingdom. So what about the Ukrainian refugee, Alice? And I, I, I read a lot about this in your report.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you bring up a really great point, And obviously those assumptions about, you know, that refugees bring security risks are often rooted in racist assumptions um, and, and ignorance. Um, and I think it, it's um, it's really up to the individual countries now to implement um, the temporary, t- t- uh, the, the temporary, protection directives in a safe, in an inclusive way. So watching for if third-party nationals fleeing Ukraine are receiving the same treatment as Ukrainians in terms of a safe passage into Europe, um, which we've already heard reports of, you know, people who are from Africa, from Central Asia, being turned away at the border compared to Ukraine, white Ukrainians. Um, and I think, honestly, when we think about the human security risks, um from this conflict, they all mainly fall on affecting the Ukrainian or they they all fall on the refugees. So um given the makeup of this refugee population, which is mostly women, children and the elderly, they are much more vulnerable to protection risks like gender based violence, sexual exploitation and abuse, and human trafficking as they attempt to uh, find refuge in Europe. So those risks are something that you know, need to be addressed in the humanitarian response. Um, the governments of the countries receiving them should try and make sure that they have you know, policies in place to make these instances occur as little as possible. Um, and another, another interesting risk that we've been hearing more of from the displacement crisis inside the countries are these forced deportations into Russia. Um, that actually the top human rights official at the United Nations uh, told the Security Council that they have documented cases of Russian spools and targeting male civilians around Kiev um, and, you know, beating them, detaining them and taking them to these detention camps inside Russia and Belarus. Um, And back to your point about, you know, countries vulnerable to Russian provocation, we think of Belarus um, definitely in that instance.
0: I think this raises another important question, Alice, regarding the people who left in Ukraine, the people who still live in Ukraine. Yeah. What what is the situation of these people?
1: Yeah, so the situation in Ukraine, as we know, remains highly volatile, and fighting is intensifying in the Donbass, in the eastern, and in eastern Ukraine. um, And, you know, people inside will be displaced multiple times, and that's such for safety. So... Humanitarian access, like I mentioned, with the humanitarian corridors inside Ukraine for internally displaced people, is is going to be an issue, um, and the focus should be on how to get the humanitarian response to scale safely. Um, and we've also seen um, the situation worsened by targeting of you know civilian infrastructure and also railway stations where they would be you know using to leave Ukraine and. And the World Health Organization actually made an announcement or released a statement this week that over two hundred health sites have been confirmed as destroyed um, that was specifically targeted in Ukraine. And so that these IDPs who may have been injured from you know bombing um, are now in need of health assistance, and they aren't able to get it. Well, they have to you know travel a long way to get the that get the help they need. Um, and so these the numbers of idps in need and in, in need of humanitarian assistance will just continue to go up uh, due to the level of brutality, the siege tactics, and attacks on civilian infrastructure, so this will drive more and more people to make the uh dangerous decision to flee
0: yeah and regarding the economic impacts we the, the the world was suffering from the the, the pandemic in two thousand and twenty and two thousand and twenty one and now there is this war with this large number of refugees, what do you think about the economic impact on the EU, on the United States with this constant military aids and so on?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I think when I will say what the short term costs for Ukrainian refugees and and refugees in generally, when they're being the most reported on, um, that the cost is very high because they are in an intense period of need. We're in the crisis response phase. Um, They need assistance and they're obviously not able to begin working yet, especially because many of uh, the refugees are women and they have children. They'll need their children to be in some some sort of like childcare or registered for education before they can, you know, work a full-time job and contribute to the country's um, economic outlook. But in the long term, uh, as Ukrainians become more settled and integrated into their host communities, the economic benefits really do outweigh these short-term costs. But you make a very great point that the, the cost right now is extremely high um, and that those, are because of the need, is extremely high. And all of the, the knock-on effects throughout Europe, throughout the world, um, are requiring more and more financial support to offset um, the effects of the influx on issues like supply chain disruptions and higher inflation.
0: Yeah, and last week we we all listened and followed the, the the speech of Vladimir Putin, the the Russian president, as well as the announcement of President Biden in the United States, and the everyday speech and announcement from Vladimir Zelensky, the president in Ukraine. So the the conclusion on your reports, you wrote down a policy recommendations for the decision makers. So would you brief us with these recommendations?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think um, ensuring the, the main recommendation and something I would highlight is that that needs to be aid, not just emergency aid, but for a long-term response. And this includes a focus on integration, as we know, because the economic um, impact will be more positive if Ukrainian refugees are integrated and that for the long term. And meeting, you know, the specific needs of the demographics. So of the women, of the children, ensuring education, um, ensuring women have childcare, um, and then, you know, acknowledging that this is a protracted crisis, which are uh, increasingly difficult to deal with, especially when the media will go in and out of highlighting it. Um, but continuing the the the, pro- the process of supporting. Ukrainians, um, you know, substantive solidarity in terms of funding and responsibility sharing with the affected communities and those hosting, uh, critical, um, and you know, acknowledging that we are already facing record levels of displacement and need in the world from previous crises, and these just haven't gone away, and in fact, that being compounded um, because of this humanitarian emergency, and so. Even as, you know, Russia and the West remain far apart in terms of the broader conflict, the U.S. must continue to negotiate items on the humanitarian agenda with Russia. Um, So one of my recommendations was, you know, negotiating items on the humanitarian agenda, specifically keeping humanitarian corridors open and accessible. And, you know, the the U.S. being um, a a positive convener uh, for countries receiving refugees, you know, meeting with them, figuring out how they can best help them and assist them with their emergency response to the crisis and, you know, leveraging their relationship with their partners um, to lead behind on the, from this issue. Because, you know, as they're not as geographically close, they may not be supporting as many refugees um, and doing as equal share of the burden sharing, um, but they can still financially support, make sure the financial support is flexible um, as the crisis changes and that, as refugees have evolving
0: needs. These are very interesting recommendations, uh, Alice. And I always say that refugees are victims of every single conflict or every single war. They are paying the price of this horrific war. So I think the international community should stand for this refugee, this high number of refugees from uh, Ukraine as well as before from Syria or Afghanistan or every single refugee uh around the world. Alice Hickson, thank you very much for joining me today. It was a great conversation with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And thank you all uh, our listeners and see you next Tuesday in a new episode of Untold Stories podcast. Bye.